Welcome to the ITAM Reviews monthly radiocast with your host, Martin Thompson. Joining him on the sofa of software are regulars Barry, the Sam Mercenary Pilling, and the man known as the Sam Beast, David Foxen. Then on the couch of contention is Jeff, welcome to the Velodrome, Worsley, and he is joined with Rory, Process Guard, Canavan. And lastly, in the wing back of wickedness, is the soft, cuddly, and courteous Danny Beck. Moderating today for fairness and behavior is Libby, the item wench, Phillips. Please note all opinions are personal opinions and don't flag the item review or respective employees. Other opinions are available. Welcome to the February edition of the Item Review Radio Show. Welcome, guys. How's it going, Industry news this month, gentlemen. Um, in so we're, we're recording this on the 13th February, and the last couple of weeks, I think we saw that um, uh, Axel, uh, former CEO of Snow, is is out. Um, any views on that one? Is I believe you know, and I'm open to correction on this, but Michel Rao's been brought in very much to cue the company up for um, IPO or floating on the stock exchange. So. Um, I guess he was felt more suited to do that than than Axel. So, has anyone actually have, had any conversations with the new CEO? No. No. Nope. Nope. I guess it, it's what happens when you when you play with the venture capitalists, isn't it? Yeah, actually, you know, there's probably a few companies that are in that space at the moment. Uh, we probably have to keep on thinking about on what's going to happen with them in, in the future. What do you mean? Well, there's more than a few people within the the SAM space or companies within the SAM space that have gone, you know, to you know either venture capitalists or you know have been bought out by you know um, investment companies, etc. That you know, and normally when that ends up happening, you know, within six months, twelve months, there's normally quite a large change in the way that they end up doing things. Yeah, you tend to see a fair amount of streamlining of staff, don't you? One of the consequences. Possibly. Yeah, management tends to, you know, once it's all stabilized, they tend to be changed out as well. You know, it, 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 I suppose it's um, the two sides of, a, of the knife, isn't it? You know, you need that investment of cash in order to actually take you to the next level. But it also means that you end up having an awful lot of change at the same time. And with change always comes uncertainty. And with uncertainty, people tend to move around the market an awful lot. So, do you know what I mean? It's there's a there's a lot of a lot there to be said. Where yeah, if if you can get past all of that, then companies do tend to do quite well and actually move on to the next phase. Mm-hmm. Um, but an awful lot of can end up suffering during that as well. I think that change is kind of already happening, though, judging by the amount of um, senior snow folk that um, post in kind of weekly updates on LinkedIn, LinkedIn, saying that they've moved roles and you know, thank you for their time at Snow. But I think as well, having worked directly with Axel, you can't underestimate um, how kind of good he was at getting Snow to the position that he did. Um, and as a CEO, he, you know, his door was always open. He was always there to listen to people's ideas. And, uh, but like you said, it's now kind of taking them to that next level. Um, and, you know, ServiceNow investing heavily in the tool space. There's going to be a lot of pressure to make sure that the likes of Snow and Flexera stay competitive. Um, and I know that's news later on, but the service now stuff looks pretty cool. So, you know, you need to have that competitive advantage, right, to keep the keep the money coming in. Thing is, as well, venture capitalism is all about the uh, the bottom line, isn't it, and the return on investment. 
So I, I imagine that anyone in that situation where they've invested their money privately and they expect to see that growth, they're going to be looking to trim away any waste or inefficiency that they can find anyway. So that's why you get the uh, continuing change, isn't it? Mm. And it's interesting you that we mentioned ServiceNow because that's obviously where, the, where where you want to be. That's where you want to get the company of to to that sort of level of size or size of engage or size of of company. So if if doing an IPO actually gets you there, then uh, uh, then fair enough, I suppose, because otherwise you're 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 potentially stagnating. You're leaving yourself open to buy out anyway, aren't you? Somebody coming in and gazumping you. So when when these um, venture capitalists come in to put some money in, presumably they do some sort of market sizing to say what's the size of the market, what's the size of the potential. Uh, and it's a question we get asked quite often: How big is the market? Um, is it growing, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. How would you answer the question? Uh, how big is the R time market? How 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 would you how would you answer that? I'd say not big enough. I suppose there's an awful lot of pop market penetration to still go. You know, in, without AM, especially when it comes to the the SAM space, um, you know, not enough companies have really realised or latched onto the value that having the, these controls in place, uh, the advantages it can bring to their business. So. You know, if you look at all the companies out there and all the SAM managers, you know, uh, you know, I would say that you know the vast majority of companies don't have someone that's actually dedicated in their space. Um, probably a little bit more in the ham side because they see that as you know something that's actually physically on there, so they need to track it a bit more. But I'd say there was still a awful lot of underinvestment in that space. Companies that are making the investment are actually seeing large amounts of savings and are actually investing heavier into it. So once they've actually seen the advantages of things, to even if it doesn't bring them all the savings, they, they, they are investing more heavily into it. But I would say potential market size and actual market as it stands at the moment and growth, um, I'd say it's still growing quite strongly. Um, I'd still say it's still in its infant stages um, yeah. that there's an awful lot of market still there. Um, before everyone's actually doing it, and uh, you know, to me, this I, I truly believe that ITAM, as, as it stands at the moment, is an on its own piece of a of, of a business, a little bit like how cybersecurity has kind of become its own branch within a company. So, most cybersecurity will have you know a CISO who might report to the CTO, or they may report directly to the CEO. Um, but really, you've you've kind of got an APTAM branch that should be hanging off in exactly the same manner that is doing a, a, doing that as well at that same level. So I see that as us being where cybersecurity were maybe 10, 15 years ago. Do you know what I mean? So where cybersecurity was kind of in in its infancy and now has been realized by uh, most companies as a, a, an integral part of the business and something you need to invest heavily in in order to ensure that you can work as a business going forward. So as a venture capitalist and the market size of ITAM and the huge amount of opportunities, I mean, you can look at the number of organizations that has an ITAM, a SAM, a HAM manager, but then you still get those people that are in that position that still don't have the technology to help support them. So if you're looking to invest in a, in a tool and expand that market, then, it, you know, the potential is huge. And like Danny said, we're still in the infancy. And if I had, if I was a venture capitalist and had some money to burn, I would definitely be looking at this industry because there's so much potential, there's so much reward. And, you know, when you start getting case studies back, if you end up being a billion dollar 
ITAM technology company, the amount of money that you've been saving all of your customers is going to be huge publicity and PR. And then you can even, you know, branch out into other areas to help out. But we are still such, and well, not such, but we're still an infant function, right? Uh, we're still growing, we're still maturing. Um, and I think that that's, that's an exciting thing and it's, and it's an exciting place for us that are in the industry now and in the market now. It's an exciting place for us to be because who knows what it's going to look like in five, ten years' time. How would you measure the size of it, do you think? So everyone that's got an ITAM job, the cost of all the tools that they use, the cost of all the service providers they use, uh, what else? Is that it, do you think? It'd be tempting to throw in the cost of the software that's actually bought as well, but then you could argue, well, hang on, that covers service management, it covers IT ops, it covers, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of spread across all the, the potential IT and business domains as well. Um, I, I, guess it, I guess it depends where, where you could conceivably draw the line then at that point, because if you're, if you're making the point to implement SAM from a compliance point of view or from a cost savings or cost avoidance point of view, then you, you start eking into that, that area, that territory of sort of accounting. Yeah, I think to build a market size, that's a good place to start, isn't it? How many organisations, say, for example, within the UK have a, a SAM, oh, see, that's hard if you're a global, but anyway, if you have a SAM tool, that's one data set to look at. How many people have an ITAM or SAM professional? That's another data set. How many have a managed service? How many have nothing? Um, because, yeah, otherwise I don't really know where you'd start to understand the size of the industry and the potential in there. Yeah, I think if it was purely based on sales of, of SAM and ITAM tools, it'd be possibly a, a bit too conservative to use to yeah. assess assess size size of organization because you, you like you say you've got all the consultancy that sits around it and all the services that sit around it as well yeah i, I think we've got a lot of the data already i think it, it i'd love to do it just to purely put a stake in the ground and then do the same assessment next year and see if we've grown or not um <clears throat> i think gartner stephen white from gartner uh quoted ten thousand global asset managers that was it he's gartner conference backing October, November, whenever it was. Um, I think we did some research into all of the customers of all the sound tools, and that came out about 25,000, I think. So, for example, Snow claimed to have 7,000 customers. Flexera has got probably a couple of thousand, and on and on. And you add all those up, and that's the total number of tool customers. And then we've probably got the data on managed service providers and how many customers they have. And we've got average salary size, so we could probably do some sort of back of fag packet um, guesstimates about how big the market is. You can probably do guesstimates on how big the market should be. You know, any company that's really got over a couple of thousand people in it, you know, it's probably got a multi-million pound IT spend, at uh, which point spending, you know, 1% of that on an ITAM person, you know, whether the junior because you're a small company or whether they're a senior person or not, will probably give you a rough idea on the global size of ITAM potential. Next industry news piece I have is, um, uh, and this came from Rory, I think you've, you sent this across, Rory, that ServiceNow's um, next release, which is Madrid, uh, which is, I think is probably, they start probably talking about it in the summer and release later this year, I imagine. Hoping, ha happy to be corrected there. And, um, well, if we come to you first, Rory, what, what do you think of this? What, what's, what's drawn your eye to this? 
Um, well, I can spell Madrid. Um, I, I really, I really haven't had a, a chance to dig deep, other than the, uh, um, you know, the, the, the sort of release notes, as it were. And I think you kindly sent out a screen grab of that just before the the call. So it looks like they're starting to do more with uh, with SAP reconciliation, SAP management around the licensing as well. So there's uh, uh, there's a bit more calculation going on there around the licensing. I only had a quick skim, but I noticed. Um there was five, one of the complaints that people have pulled up before. I think is, is it's only it's only pulling up like um, I think it was only doing add and remove programs or something. Danny, you probably know have a better view of this. Um, but they've added file scanning because just picking up add and remove programs won't be strong enough. Barry, Barry, as our resident technical specialist, do you want to hazard a explanation of why file scanning is needed? Oh right, okay. Um, Putting you on the spot. Yeah, yeah, just a bit. <laughs> and can you can you explain what the medium of cake as well? Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what? I'm just going to pack up and go home if you guys keep going on about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's working, guys. It's working. <laughs> the cracks are showing, aren't they? That's terrible. I mean, to be honest with you, I, I, I'm not overly familiar with ServiceNow's technology either. I, I, I will just throw that stake in the ground because I, I've never dealt with it directly. I've had a couple of clients that use ServiceNow, but I've never really used it directly, particularly their sound modules. So I, su I um, suspect, I suspect too, why why it might be that you need uh, more than um, Windows or WMI recognition is because uh, you'll have non non Windows OS devices out there. And if you take a Unix system, yeah. you can you can install your software anywhere. So it's it's not it's not so structured as to say right go here to find out where all the software is installed on this device. Yeah, the, the thing is obviously different different scanning technologies and different tools have different report back different values as well. Um, and I've always been one, and I think most people in this industry as well um, to approach it from a perspective. You want as many different. Um, sources of data as you can possibly cobble together because once you do that that's when you actually get a more complete picture so i definitely agree with scanning x's on servers and stuff like that it, that doesn't make much sense in scanning it on the end user computers so although you have the technology if you look at sccm you can go and scan x's you can scan dlos and scan anything you know in the end one you can go and pull back data you can have all the, all of this done automatically and ServiceNow will be leveraging that type of software to go, or, or that type of um, ideas to go and get all the software there. You know, if if your end user computing estate is a Linux estate, or you know, or a Android type of estate, you know, then of course you've got to think of different ways of actually bringing back the data. But if if it is able to record in some sort of format where the installations have occurred. Then that's actually normally the first case. You would then only have to scan for executables on things um, that aren't installed in a traditional manner. So, if you were to, you could cut and paste from someone's machine an executable, and as long as that is fully contained within itself, you can run it on a new machine, and thus you've ended up, you know, having a new license on that new machine, even though it's not registered because there's nothing in the registry or anything else on on a Windows machine for example. So that's why you need executable, but you don't need to scan for executables unless you know you are putting that type of software out on your estate that could easily be copied from executable to executable from machine to machine. Major reason for that is, you, you know, you, bring, you end up bringing back calculator.exe, you end up bringing back, you know, the, God, there's thousands of executables within Windows itself. Do you know what I mean? So you end up yeah. bringing back tens of thousands of executable files 
Whereas actually you don't need anything apart from maybe two. So it's easier to scan for those two executables and make changes to your scanning software rather than actually bringing back all the data because of the, the, the size of your database. Now, this ends up not being a problem if your state is a couple of thousand machines and a couple of thousand users. It becomes a, an awful large problem when you have half a million people within your state and you know maybe 200,000 machines. That's an awful lot of data and that has an awful lot of cost to it. So no as Sam or ITAM people were very interested in getting the more data, the better. But I actually think it's the more relevant data, the better. Because you also have such situations, if you look at Oracle, where it's actually, if you have some of the DLLs, even though they're not executable, that, because it's IP and it's classed as being something that's actually licensable, in theory, you, you could end up having to pay for a license for those DLLs still being resident on the machine. So actually, I need to scan for DLLs now. I've got DLLs and executables. And you can see how that quickly grows into something that's actually um, not easily controllable. So I, I suppose knowing what you've bought on your estate, and actually, you know, this is why it ends up with this bit of an argument of do you work on the discovery side first or do you work on the entitlement side first? You end up with a bit of a banter back and forth. You know, you can use your entitlement to go, what do I need to scan for? And then scan for that. You could do a blanket scan of most of your machines and then switch it off just to, to kind of give yourself a baseline so that you're not overloading or everything with a huge amounts of data. And then just go back and actually scan for the executables that you need to look for. But of course, that also takes an awful lot of time and effort and it takes a lot of technical knowledge as well. And 90% of some functions out there don't have that capability to go and do those types of things. So... Um, but service now bringing in that with Madrid, yeah, uh, it's a natural progression. You know, if you're going to scan WMI, if you're going to scan, you know, the AdWord programs, if you're going to scan XT, you know, it, it's just a scanning piece of software. I want you to go and find this, go and search the C drive. Do you know what I mean? So, I think looking at the looking at the um, and we can share this in the block the show notes, but looking at the eight or nine things they put in. Um, this next release is similar to London in that half of the stuff is catch up with existing publishers such as SAP stuff in there and a licensed work, workbench and there's loads of new innovative stuff I think that the other vendors aren't necessarily doing um, like um, the vendor risk the, thing looks cool yeah exactly, exactly what caught my eye as well and, and it's similar to that reads I mean, we don't know the detail but that reads uh, the vendor risk assessment question bank sounds similar to the stuff that Steve Davison is doing with Sam Sentry, whereby you say, answer these questions about this vendor, and if you don't know them, then you probably, it's worth looking at that vendor a bit further, you know. That sounds very similar. Um, so anyway, this is where good. we've spoken about previously, where you end up putting a risk, a risk score against each vendor based upon 10 or 15 different type of criteria, at which point it comes up with a formula in the background and says, well, look, maybe you need to do something about this because the chances are they're going to order you within the next three months, that type of thing. But, but I think, don't we do that as Sam managers anyhow? Is try and figure out you know, when we're next going to be target of an audit or... You know, you know, because of the data I've got, do I need to go and have a look at this based upon a risk profile? Because, of course, we can't go and fix everything all at once. We we do, Danny, but I suspect the, way, the, the, the logic behind the way ServiceNow is working is that, that they do everything in the tool. Hmm. So rather than actually thinking we'll, we'll extract the data from whatever sort of Samurai Time Suite we have and actually generate 
uh, risk profiles, you know, in Excel or whatever other tool or crystal reports or whatever we're going to use to put before senior management, you've, you're using the golden source and you're using our product to do it or our product, you know, ServiceNow's product to do it. So, um, and I, I think too, Martin, you, you highlighted the the innovative stuff that ServiceNow are doing. I think they're, they're, they're listening very much to the use cases that people actually um, um, sort of strive to achieve in in SAM, so the, certainly the vendor risk management. What was the other one? There's, there's what looks like some sort of um, integrity check against configuration management. So we do a SAM check against changes, which is, I, I think is quite interesting from the point of view that you're not looking at it from a vendor perspective. You're not focusing on Oracle or Microsoft or IBM. You're looking at a technology stack and saying, is that server built the way I want it to be or should be, or that service is built the way I want it to be or should be. Um, and, and you can sort of zone in the reach, on, on hot the reach to be able to do that with the other ITSM stuff, haven't they? That the other SAM tools haven't. I, I think so. Yeah, I mean, you, you, it's almost like well, we've we've sort of fairly cracked the nut around service management already with with the platform that we have. Right? Let's let's sort of start spinning or making making use of that intelligence from SAM and ITAM into into service management. So yeah. But the way this reads as well, it sounds like it's going to be like you said, Rory. It's all going to be in the tool, which makes it far more interactive. And open to other stakeholders that previously may not have um you know they might have been sent a boring spreadsheet whereas now it'll be in a tool and then they can hopefully realize the benefits of itam even further so it seems but like it's very kind of collaborative it makes it sticky as well of course because once you start sort of tagging bits on all of a sudden these don't become nice to haves they become must-haves yeah. and you know it just makes the product more attractive across a wider bandwidth of the company I'm excited to see what it looks like. Single pane of glass to see the problem. Well, um, I think they're, they're becoming um, a force to be reckoned with. If some of this stuff is converts to number of customers, then they'll be um, making a serious impact. We must stress, of course, that other SAM tools are available and uh, look forward to assessing other tools, etc., etc. Yeah, when someone else comes up with something that's just as interesting. I'd like to pick your brains about a question on the forum that we received relatively recently. Um, when you sit down with a new boss or a new customer or whoever it might be, and they ask the question, what assets should I track, i.e. what's in scope, how should you answer that or how do you normally answer it? So he's talking harder as well, Martin. I don't know, I'm just asking a question. I don't know, I'm just your boss. I'm just asking a question, what, what have I got to track? So I, I, I always ask clients where um, where they set their value. What what yeah. what do they uh, have their, their most valuable yeah. uh, stock in, in terms of, of assets? I mean, at the end of the day, obviously, from a hardware perspective, you're going to be tracking you know, servers, whether virtual or physical. You're going to be tracking desktops, whether virtual or physical. You know, if you want to do pure item, you're going to be looking at uh, printers of all sorts, network switches, routers, hubs, you know. I mean, where, where do you draw the line? In my experience with hardware, most customers sort of draw the line at consumables. So you don't worry about things like keyboards and mice so much because they're very easily and cheaply re replaceable. Um, and in terms, of, in terms of software assets, I mean, it really comes down to what your definition of a software asset is. I mean, I, I've seen, I've been in some organizations where they want to track everything. You know, they want to make sure they have a complete chain of, of uh, data from 
you know, the software license agreement to the invoice where that software license agreement was bought and the purchase. Or, you know, so it really comes down to what, what their particular needs are um, and what, what they are most desirous of tracking, what their um, resource availability is to actually take on board all this stuff, what tools they have at their disposal. There's so many variables in play here. Um, and it's really about getting the best fit solution in place for for that particular client. Client, sorry, based on the, on the tooling and, and resourcing and and what their what their priorities are. Spot on. I think um, I completely agree. And if you're going into an organisation that's not done ITAM before, you know you don't want to start boiling the ocean. If they start saying, well, everything's in scope, monitors, keyboards, mice, you know, even cables for network stuff. It's like, oh, yeah. oh, oh steady on, hold on. Um, let's look at the key stuff first and, and build that list of what you define as an IT asset. And then like, like Barry said, work from the top down, most valuable down. Um, and like, it depends on resources, right? If there's only one of you, you got to pick and choose your battles. So yeah, I, I agree absolutely. to the same point. It, to me, everything should be tracked. And I completely agree with any customer that says, I want to track everything. But of course, you've got to start somewhere. Uh, so straight back to you, both of you boys is, yeah, you know, exactly, let's start somewhere. In regards to what's the most valuable asset, um, yeah, that's again where uh, I think you come back to what we were talking about in regards to service now is that risk profiling. You know, mm -hmm. something that's worth a million pounds, then you want to track that extremely closely. Um, you know, every single usage of it and how people are using it and et cetera, et cetera. Um, if it's a piece of software that's pound ninety nine, you may not want to track it until it's on 50,000 machines. Do you know what I mean? At which point, it's starting now to get to a value that I actually want to start monitoring the usage of this piece of software. So I, th I think it's and what my risks are of being audited and being found to be using it incorrectly or anything else like that. So... I think it depends on that type of scoring, but and that's how I tend to approach it as well. I mean, what you're saying about the risk profile is very interesting as well, Danny, because I think when it comes to software vendors, everybody adopts a risk profile, don't they? Yeah, and because you can't do everything. You have the experience that the, the vendor that normally sits at the top of that list is Big Red, you know, because everybody is worried about them auditing, uh, and everybody thinks that they have some risk to it to a certain degree when it comes to Oracle. So I, always but, I mean, I've never been into a I've never been to a client where the top three vendors they were worried about were not Microsoft, Oracle, and either SAP or IBM. And, and at least they're within the, the top ten. I find that Microfocus um, also ends up yeah. being quite high up there. Uh, and HP at times as well. I, I do think that the risk profile changes over the course of a year, and you need to constantly track it. So, you know, when, it's, when, it's, when Oracle have gone through their financial end of year, they're actually not that interested Absolutely, in yeah. people until yeah. they get to the last three months, at which point that, that risk profile shoots up in that last three months when it's coming up to the end of year, you're more likely to be hit at that point more than yeah. any other point. And, and also if you track it over time, you can kind of go, okay, I'm going to take my eye off Oracle at the moment and concentrate on IBM or concentrate on Microsoft or concentrate on Microfocus because I know their profile's on the up now. So you kind of have to change your focus throughout the year while you're juggling those maybe six ones at the top. And then when you do come across times where it ends up being, a, you know, as you get more control, uh, then you end up being able to think on an extra two, an extra four, until eventually you are able to, to handle a, a much larger number of vendors, but still working on that risk profiling throughout the year. I, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. Completely agree. I mean, the thing is that there are lots of vendors, as, as you've mentioned a few, there's a lots of vendors out there 
that kind of get lost in the noise when you're you're setting up ITAM because people focus so much on, on the big vendors that, that I mentioned earlier. And yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, microfocus is definitely uh, should be high on anybody's risk profile. I would I would go so far as to say um, maybe Informatica and, and SaaS as well always I, worth. I completely uh, agree. Yeah. And, and, and that's where it changes throughout the year. And you can quest yeah. need these two. Yeah, quest is now coming. Or when you hear in news from the ITAM review or something that someone's just bought someone else, and you kind of go, okay. Uh, all, all of a sudden, that's just adding an extra hundred punts onto their yeah. business. Because they're now going to have to get back the money they just paid fifteen million pounds out buying another company. So the response from your response from your interview was um he or she liked your answers uh, but he wanted something a bit more concise okay <laughs> <laughs> well, just barry just just to round off on your your point about big red and all of that um one of one of the organizations i had dealings with in the past their their approach and resolution um was was to get oracle off the it estate at every available opportunity was to get rid of it seen, seen that happen a few times yeah. yeah, seen that happen a few times. Replace Oracle with another, um, you know, suitable database uh, product, and and in in a certain more than a few cases, I've seen it actually replaced with open source products as well. On to our next feature. Job, job of the week. week. Um, the job I was going to share with you is actually gone. So as of this about five minutes ago, this job is no longer accepting applications. So the role is Assistant Vice President, no less, Software Asset and License Management Analyst. That's the at, MUFG one. At a company called MUFG in London. Yeah. yeah. Uh, does, it, does that win a prize for the longest job title of the week? <laughs> Mitsubishi UFJ Financial Group. Uh, what I noticed, I'd love to get your feedback on this, what I love to this is they're clearly a snow customer, aren't they? Lots of dropping of can you do this can you do that in snow what, what do we think of this role it's a big role i think i think um the, the probably the biggest factor in this is actually um an acute awareness of global item and global licensing policies of the major vendors once you get stuck into the, into the licensing because obviously as it says there they operate in over 50 countries 2300 offices um so the first thing you've really got to think about is right okay if i'm implementing an item practice uh, into uh, this organisation, how do I go about getting that federated out to all those uh, all those different locations? Because that that I think is the first and the biggest challenge. I think there's two things that um, that kind of jumped out at me. One of them is they've also got another tool for their software catalogue, which if they've got Snow, I wonder if that's like a delivery. It's Serena Business Management. Has anyone heard of that? Isn't that like process process flow sort of stuff? Enter new approved software details to the software catalog in Serena Business Management. If you've got Snow, I don't... Uh, okay. Uh, and then the other thing is, it says that they're looking for someone with three years' experience. But like Barry said, this is a big role. Surely you need a bit more than that to tackle this one with over 150,000 I, 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 mean, I, I miss that bit. I don't think this is a role for someone who's been in the industry for three years. I, I would think this is someone who's been in the industry for minimum five five to seven years to be able to take on because you'd need a fair bit of experience to make a success of this. The thing that springs to mind, it says licensing knowledge of product use rights for tier one software vendors, for example, Microsoft, Adobe, Oracle and IBM. So they've just disclosed who the big ones to look after are, um, which could also be an audit threat if the vendors are prowling through job titles, couldn't it? 
Yeah, but that they tend to float to the top anyhow, like we said earlier. You know, so we know who the tier ones are. We could all probably name them, and they are them. I like the way they say desirable. So if you don't know them, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you're strong in wind zip, you know it's fine. But but to be fair as well, who who has got really really strong knowledge of all four Microsoft, Adobe, Oracle, and IBM? No one to be able to do it on their own. Um, and for that size of company too, as well, Martin. I think you know, if you you're talking about a global entity, then you're you're talking about you know global agreements for for the big four, for the big six, or whatever. It's um, it that's, well, not, that's well, not a one person saying. job, I would say. You know, I presume they're talking about getting a team in to help you. Although it does say licensing knowledge, so I have knowledge about all four of those vendors. But I, yeah. Yeah, it's licensing expertise. If so, if I had to said licensing expertise in these four vendors, I'd be like, okay, that's like an impossible ask. But licensing knowledge, yeah. No, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm not so sure on that, Danny. I've got to be honest. So, I mean, obviously, being a, a, a freelance consultant, I could be thrown into any um, situation and, and suddenly require knowledge of, of any vendor. Yeah. I and, think, I think that's, that's, a, that's a shameless plug for your consultancy services. No, no, I'm trying to make a serious point here, though, Martin, right? So I wouldn't walk into somewhere and say, I'm an expert in all four of those vendors, because I'm, I am not an out I mean, I'm very, very good at, at three of them, but I'm not an out-and-out -out expert at all of them. But if a boss or a client or whatever says to me, what do you know about, I mean, I'll give you one example, Informatica. I, I had dealings with a client around Informatica licensing last year. I'd never seen it before, never touched it. But the information is out there on the internet for you to actually go and find it and do that research. And I think that's something that's missing a little bit from the industry at the moment. I mean, you do sometimes find there's a little bit of a gap where people don't have the initiative or the now sort of common sense to go and find out what they need to know. But within five days, I was quite strong on informatical licensing because I'd gone out there and done it. And I actually think that, that everybody should be able to do that because you can't possibly have a, a, a record collection of every vendor and every license method every metric every policy of course you can't you know but you build up the experience and you keep notes of what you've what you've learned and that came out in our salary survey last year is that one of the most desirable skills was not necessarily to have encyclopedic knowledge of all this stuff but the ability to adapt to say right here's the something Absolutely. new like you just said yeah. like you just said let's go and get our arms around it go and understand it go and understand it it works where the major risks are and then present the risk back to the business. Well, that's that's the real skill. I think it's professional. I have a OneNote notebook, which I devote just to licensing stuff. And obviously, every, find I've, every time I find something useful on the internet, I thought, actually, that, that could be good for the future. I'll do a clip of it. It goes in the notebook. That notebook is massive. It really is, because of all the stuff I chuck in there. I, I, I couldn't agree more with you guys. You know, In the end, I don't know everything about IBM, Oracle, Adobe, or Microsoft. I'm pretty good at it. Um, but the same is I go and research it. In fact, even the stuff I know, I end up double checking just in case something's changed in the past. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, else. it's just a natural thing for me as a sound manager. Now, if I, if we buy a new vendor or I go onto a site with a new vendor that I don't know before, it's not just the the ability to be able to Google it. Anyone can go and do that. But of course, it's all that vast knowledge that you have in the past of how to then apply that, what things are actually relevant and which things aren't. Yeah. Allow you to actually gain the information quickly and the relevant information that actually drives value to your customer. 
I think that is a, an extremely valuable skill of, of all sound managers when they get to that stage. So, you know, you have that broad base of knowledge and that broad, and that depth of knowledge that you're able to draw from means that when you come across a new vendor, you're able to get to the value to it extremely quickly. You're able to actually defend very fast, even though you may have only started researching it that morning and you're up against an auditor in the afternoon. Do you know what I mean? And you can yeah. actually sit there and quite happily argue a few points, knowing that you may be skating on some edges there, but you've been in front of vendors and auditors so many times before, you know exactly what you're doing. Yeah, so yeah. And, and, and I've been in that exact situation as well, you know, where, where I've been trying to defend an audit on a product I've not dealt with before. Yeah, and, so, and, and that valuable, yeah. that's invaluable experience. That's the stuff that companies yeah. need to buy in or yeah. you know, at, at least invest in because that that's the thing that will save them all the time because, yeah, if you look at your own estate or I look at my estate and you've got thousands of products on there, how can I possibly know how every single product is being used at every single moment of every single day? You know, I'm not a computer. I think it also depends on what they define as licensing knowledge because you can, it, for me, it's like the difference between ordering a beer and a pizza in German versus holding a business meeting in German. You, you can be conversational in a vendor and know enough to spot bullshit, basically, and then you can have deep knowledge of it. I think there's two different... Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Absolutely agree with that. So well, yeah, routinely, you have conversations with other people, and and you know some some conversations you have, for example, with you know client resellers and so on and so forth. The, the licensing conversations can get quite deep, where you get really down into the guts of something. They're good conversations, though. I enjoy a deep licensing conversation. Don't lie, you guys do too. Yeah, is is, is that a metaphor for something, Dave? I just want to check. <laughs> No, not at all. Moving swiftly on, I did notice as well that the role goes into the infrastructure team. What do you think about that? I thought that was interesting, actually. I mean, um, in, in during my career, I've seen um, teams placed in various uh, places within an organisation, most commonly service management. But yeah, you see them aligned to procurement. You see them aligned to to, to infrastructure. Um, I think that's good. I mean, for me, coming from a technical background, I dare say Danny would probably say something similar. It's great because obviously you do have to have those really vital relationships with the infrastructure guys because obviously you're going to you're going to lean on them for a lot of uh, data and information and you know pointers and guidance around what they're doing. Um, but at the same time, you know, you need to make sure you've got the similar level of relationship, similar deep relationship with the procurement and financial guys as well, potentially security, potentially legal, you know. So whilst they've aligned it, I think, I think a lot of people do is they put it into either technical or procurement or whatever because they just don't really know what else to do with ITEM. I mean, you know, in an ideal world, ITEM should be the hub of the wheel with all of these other departments as the spokes around it. Yeah, and I won't read too much into the report into infrastructure because service delivery tends to report into a kind of infrastructure um, you know, manager, like head of infrastructure. We quite often have the architects who look after the infrastructure, the storage guys will also have service delivery. Do you know what I mean? So I'd be at caveat there to kind of say is, well, it may not actually be having anything to do with infrastructure, but actually comes under the infrastructure heading on, on the head of infrastructure, uh, which could have service delivery. So you could be more aligned with the service delivery side. But completely with Barry, you know, I spend my life more or less sitting with the architects, you know, that they always complain that I don't actually sit next to them at all times. 
because my conversations are always around the, the high level designs, what they're doing next, how they're actually going to do that. You know, and the service delivery guys end up doing much more of the asking us questions rather than, you know, actually figuring out a strategy going forward. So I, I suppose they feed more into us and we feed more into the, the architectural team than the other way around. So also got on the, on the work experience front, they said proven ability to build relationships with a variety of key stakeholders and experience in working in, with multiple departments. And they've also put communication as a key strength as well. So um, it's, you know, I think it's a good, I think it's a good opportunity. It's, it's, it's well written and it's a good, it's a nice opportunity for somebody. Like, jargon buster. Jargon buster! Uh, we're on a virtual theme here, so Barry, step up to the plate here. We've got IBM subcapacity via the medium of cake. Over to you, sir. IBM subcapacity licensing. I'm going to start off being technical. We'll, we'll talk about the cake afterwards. Um, so also known as virtualization capacity licensing, then. So obviously with IBM uh, PVU licensed and to a lesser extent RV licensed software, you can license it either full hardware capacity or subcapacity if you're using it in a virtual environment. So breaking it down to a very simple level, if you have a VMware host and you have uh, 15 VMs on that host and you have IBM software installed on two of them, subcapacity licensing means you can license the software just on the two VMs that are running it. Full capacity means you have to license the entire host. Um, so putting into cake terms, um, full capacity, um, IBM effectively wants you to pay for the entire cake, even if you only want to consume two slices of it. Um, subcapacity, you only have to pay for the slices that you actually consume. About the only little cake. But you do have to install IBM's um, cake metric, which will yeah. measure how much cake you've actually consumed. That's more like the napkin. So you get the slice with the napkin. If you don't, then you get messy, and you don't want to really get messy with IBM. Right. Uh, Till next time. Thanks, guys. Catch you next Cheers, month. Man. Cheers, Peace. See you next month, guys. See you then. Bye.